Aviva Sheba, reading from Chapter 2 of Being Frank. Chapter 2, The Irish Factor. The 22nd of April 1922 had been a busy day for Frank and Annie Houston. Their oldest child was six and Annie had managed to create a special dinner in spite of the shortage of finance and her very pregnant condition. She was clearing away the remains of the meal when the contractions began at five minute intervals. Frank, I think it's time to get Arthur Tucknot to take me to Nurse Jackman's. The baby's coming. Greta Rebecca danced around excitedly. The baby was coming on her birthday. Linda was only two and didn't care. Their father grabbed his old beret off the hook and hurried out to his bicycle. Furiously, he pedalled the three blocks to the Tucknot residence. Hurry, Arthur, get your truck out. Annie's about to have the baby, he gasped in his rich Irish brogue. Arthur Tucknot owned one of the few vehicles around in 1922. Leave your bike here, Frank. You can get it later, he said as he cranked the truck into life. Annie was waiting for them, bag in hand. They sat her between them on the very hard seat of the smart blue truck. Arthur released the handbrake and pushed the lever on the steering column to set it in motion. The solid, tired vehicle seemed to hit every pothole in the unsealed road. Hurry, she gasped as another contraction gripped her. He's doing 30 miles an hour now and he can't go any faster, Frank rebuked her. It will be better when we get on the tar seal. Annie was relieved when they pulled up at the midwife's house 15 minutes later. Frank hurried her along the path, anxious to get her into the midwife's care. He gave her a quick kiss goodbye and beat a hasty retreat encouraged by Nurse Jackman. Childbirth was women's business in those days. Fathers were a nuisance and must go home to wait. Annie didn't mind. She didn't expect any complications with the birth. Her other two children were born without any problems. Come along, dear, said Nurse Jackman thickly as she picked up Annie's bag. Her speech was blurred. This woman's drunk, Annie thought, but there was nothing she could do about the situation now. The baby's arrival was too close. The impending birth blotted out the implications of the whiskey bottle sitting on a nearby table. Annie prayed that God would be with her, overruling the situation. It wasn't too long before the lusty crying of the baby boy filled the room. Nurse Jackman laid him in a cot while she attended to the mother between gulps at the whiskey bottle. A chilled baby was bathed an hour later. Days of neglect followed as the midwife tried to cope with the mother, baby and whiskey bottle. Even Frank's Irish anger made no difference. Three weeks later, the baby was admitted to hospital, his small frame racked with pneumonia. Frank and Annie watched his struggle for life as the often fatal disease advanced to crisis point. There were no antibiotics. He was given the best medication possible and the help of a steam tent, but it wasn't enough. Complications set in. Meningitis, the doctor thought. Frank and Annie were called to the hospital. Come quickly, we think your baby is dying, the voice said. Frank was shocked. This will destroy Annie, he thought. 
All the way to the hospital, he held her hand, trying to console her, but the tears kept on falling. As they walked the endless length of the corridor leading to the ward, they wondered if God would really let their baby die. The local Anglican vicar happened to be visiting the hospital. When he saw their distress, he stopped to ask the reason, offering his help, although he knew they were not Anglican. The Reverend Weller was a man of great compassion. Whatever is wrong, can I be of any help? Reverend Waller, our baby is dying. They do not think he will last the day, Frank told him, his strong body shaken by deep sobs. Would you like me to baptise him and pray for him? The minister asked. Now, the Houstons were Baptist. At least Annie was. Frank wasn't given to going to church, although he believed in God. Anyway, in a time like this, denomination didn't matter. Would you really do that? We would be so grateful, Frank assured him. Together they walked to the ward where the baby still clung to life. What is the baby's name, Reverend Weller asked. William Francis. The vicar asked the nurse for some water and in a simple ceremony he sprinkled the baby's head. I baptise you, William Francis Houston, in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, he intoned. Putting aside the water, he reached into the steam tent, placing his hand gently on the frail body. Lord Jesus, I ask you to heal this baby by your divine power. Amen. This man of faith assured Frank and Annie that he believed the baby would recover. God answers prayer, he encouraged. It was hard to cling to that assurance as they watched their tiny son gasping for breath. A miracle had already begun, for God's hand was upon this child, though they could not see it then. He was an interesting heritage. His mother of German-English descent had suffered much in her life. Her mother had died when she was born, and she had been reared by a succession of stepmothers. There would be five in all, but only the first three were to have much influence on her life. One made her sit at the kitchen bench for her meals while the rest of the family ate in the dining room. She was beaten, often. Annie did not sorrow when that stepmother died. In spite of hurts and insecurities, she carried no bitterness. Her faith in God enabled her to keep a sense of humour, which helped her keep a forgiving spirit, for Annie Houston had never said a bad word about anybody. She developed a sense of humour which endeared her to her four children. Frank Houston had emigrated from Ireland when he was 20. He had already become a staunch Orangeman and brought with him a dislike of Roman Catholics. In his line were many clergy, including bishops, who over centuries had served in the Church of England. This was the heritage of William Francis, who should have been Francis William. For some reason known only to himself, Frank registered his children with the name they would use as their second name. A little Irish perverseness, some said. By the time Frank Jr. was seven, the Great Depression had hit New Zealand. Money was scarcer than ever, but his father was never out of work. While many of their friends lost their homes, the Houstons managed to keep the house they were buying. It was a house which hid a mixture of experiences. 
There were tempestuous times when young Frank was terrorised by his father's fits of Irish temper. Often it seemed uncontrollable. Frank never forgot the day his father banged his head on the old meat safe hanging outside the kitchen door. Filled with pain and anger, he grabbed the axe and smashed the safe into a heap of rubble. Another time when Gretha displeased him by not cleaning out the canary cage, he threw it at her. The children would scuttle to the safe places they had discovered. There were times when father would go outside, look around, then announce, there will be an earthquake tonight. It was small comfort to the children who knew he was often right in his predictions. They had horrible memories of the night when the house rocked violently, shaking them out of sleep. Bottles crashed out of cupboards and bricks were thrown out of the chimney onto the beds of two terrified girls. As their father tried to walk along the passage to rescue them, he was thrown from one side to the other. He gathered the children in the doorway till the rocking had subsided. The electricity failed, plunging the neighbourhood into darkness, but the Houston's gas lights were still burning. Fear changed to giggles when all the neighbours' children climbed onto one bed. There was comfort in company of others, but they always feared earthquakes and their father's uncanny predictions. They loved the evenings when the events of the day slipped into the past and they sat round their father to hear their favourite stories of his long trip on the boat from Ireland and the storms he experienced at sea. The waves were 30 feet high and the boat would go up and over them, throwing people round or making them so sick they had to stay in bed. The children sat spellbound as their father became the hero in this dramatic scene. Another favourite was that of the giant's causeway he'd left behind in Ireland. The rocks became giant's footprints and Irish leprechauns hid in the cracks. The story would change to one from the Bible. These were usually of the type which told of the judgment of God. God told Noah to take the animals into the ark because he would send a big flood. The people were so wicked. It rained and rained till the water was so deep all the people except Noah and his family were drowned, he told them. You kids had better be good for God is watching you. Four small children quaked at the thought of God glaring down from the dizzy heights of heaven waiting to pounce on them. Then they'd imagine the trumpets sounding to herald the second coming of Jesus as father graphically described the scene. This became an event to be feared rather than welcomed. Annie's teaching was of a gentler kind. She taught the children to pray. Every Sunday morning she walked them three miles to church and home again. Back they went for afternoon Sunday school and the third time in the day they walked back for the evening service. Sunday was God's day. No shoes to be cleaned or sports to be played. Church was an experience they all enjoyed. Although there was the occasional unspiritual event, Annie had trouble controlling. See that woman's hat, Frank said, nudging Alan in the ribs. 
she's still got the price tag hanging on it. As that prim and devout soul nodded her head in prayer, the price tag flipped up and down. The children started to giggle. Annie tried to reprimand them for their frivolous behaviour, but when she glimpsed the tag announcing to all that it had cost two pounds, she joined their amusement. How they wished their father would come to church with them, but he rarely did. He had been hurt when a denomination refused to baptise him. He would never tell us why. Sometimes he would go at Christmas. That was a special time. Every evening for months beforehand, Father would lock himself in his shed. The children were filled with curiosity. What could he be doing? He couldn't be mending shoes. He'd done that last week. Somehow, every Christmas, there were toys in their stockings, fashioned from bits and pieces found in that shed. The greatest delight was getting 14 pennies to spend however they pleased. The first Christmas after Greta started work, her employer gave her a bottle of parsnip wine. Now Annie, who had signed the pledge when she was a girl, had no idea how potent parsnip wine could be. She poured herself a glass of what she thought was soft drink and then a second. Next thing she came waltzing out to her children, waving her arms in front of her. I'm floating, I'm floating, she declared, just as a salesman came to the door. The children were horrified. Their mother, tipsy. Then they began to laugh. They vowed never to tell their father. There were some secrets that father must never know because of his wrath. But he could also laugh when it suited him. The day Annie emptied the teapot out the back door and caught the butcher full in the face with tea leaves intended for the garden, he laughed louder than them all. Tea leaves must have been good for the garden, for they were always an abundance of flowers in the front of the house and rows of fresh vegetables at the back. Frank and Alan were responsible to help with weeding and hoeing. Frank had a habit of reducing the parsnips by an alarming number, for he hated eating them. As an adult, he would often declare that man was not structured for eating parsnips. If the weeding was not done properly, there would be trouble. Hey, young varmints, you haven't done it properly. You'll get no tea till you have, father would yell. Back the boys would go, each blaming the other for the unfinished task. On most of these occasions, Frank would win the ensuing battle, but the tables turned when Alan grew taller. Frank found it humiliating to be older yet getting beaten. Often when father and son were working in the garden together, they'd hear Mr Burke, the Catholic neighbour, working in his. Now Frank Senior, being a staunch orangeman, said to Frank Junior, Frank walked down by the fence and shout, to hell with the Pope. Obediently, the small boy would do it. To hell with the Pope, to hell with the Pope, he'd chant. Young Frank developed a dislike for Catholics as he said it. For a time, Mr Burke would move to the other side of his garden without saying a word. Finally, he decided the best course of action was to beat them at their own game. When he heard young Frank on the other side of the fence, he'd get in first with the to hell with the Pope bit, thus defusing the situation. The Catholic and Protestant children engaged in wordy battles on the way to their respective schools.
Cattle dogs, cattle dogs, the Protestants cried derisively, young Frank shouting louder than the rest. He wasn't the son of an orangeman for nothing. Proddy dogs, proddy dogs, the Catholics called back, determined not to be outdone. To hell with the Pope, Frank would fling the final insult. What would Mr Burke and his father had said had they known that Frank would be invited to meet Pope John Paul II when he visited Australia in 1987? School days were not the easiest for Frank. He was so excited the first day, instantly falling in love with his teacher. Miss Pritcher was kind and understanding, but Frank was shocked when his friend, Finn, was made to stand in the corner for telling lies. He determined he would not be subjected to that kind of humiliation. His humiliation would be worse. Before too long, he knew what it was to be teased about his size. Always thin and underweight, he would never play sports. If he did, the boys would call him skinny legs. Hurt and embarrassed, he'd rush home, bursting into tears as he ran through the kitchen door. His mother would listen to his story with a great deal of sympathy, then quote the old proverb, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. This might have been the truth, but it wasn't much comfort to a sensitive nature. Then she'd add, It's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog that counts. In the fourth form, Frank had a teacher who seemed to dislike his pupils, Frank Houston in particular. Certainly he was insensitive to their feelings. As he looked at his class one day, he stated that one of them might become the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Frank sniggered, expecting the whole class to laugh. They didn't. The teacher, swinging round on his heel, vented his sarcasm at the culprit. It's all right, Houston. It won't be you. You'll never amount to anything. The stinging declaration went so deep into a young boy's spirit that he carried the wound for years. He really believed that he wouldn't amount to anything. This experience would slip into many sermons in the future as Frank would warn parents to be careful of the statements they made to their children. The only boy in the class who did understand was the boy who shared his desk. Francis Howard had become a Christian through the Salvation Army when he was 10. His experience was so real that he witnessed to his schoolmates, especially the boy he sat beside. Frank and he were the best of friends, but no amount of talking could win him over. After all, Frank Houston went to the Baptist Church. These two boys sat together through a number of school years. Francis never gave up. If they were alone, Frank would listen. But if others were around, he was too embarrassed to be part of the conversation on religion. Francis Howard never cared. All he wanted was for his schoolmates to come to know the Lord. The friendship of the two boys continued into their teens. Frank and Annie were pleased about it, for they had warned their children that they would be known by the company they kept, and Francis Howard was good company. In their teens, the paths of the two boys began to veer away from each other, although they kept in touch. 
Francis Howard maintained a bright relationship with the Lord by involving himself in all the activities of the Salvation Army. Frank Houston called in his attendance at church when he found his friends in a gang of youths. Their favourite pastimes were drinking and causing trouble. Frank always had a cigarette hanging from his mouth. On Friday late shopping nights they'd hit the town. After a few beers they'd walk the streets passing the Salvation Army open-air meeting. Francis Howard was always there but Frank Houston looked the other way, not willing to acknowledge his friend. Still, Francis persisted in his witnesses. Frank, you are wasting your life, he'd say. Why don't you come to the Sunday meeting with me? Listen, Francis, you keep your religion to yourself. I don't want it. I'm enjoying myself. That wasn't totally true. He no longer told his mother where he was going or what he was doing. He would come to breakfast irritable and unhappy following a night out. There seemed to be a wall around him which no one could break through. Annie knew the only thing she could do was pray. It took a tragedy to answer those prayers. The accident happened one lunchtime when Francis Howard met his father going home for lunch. Francis rode his bicycle behind the truck, holding on with one hand so that he was pulled along. It was much easier than pedalling into a headwind. Suddenly the wheels of the bike slid in loose metal, causing the bike and rider to fall under the wheels of the vehicle, killing Francis immediately. Frank was devastated at the news. He still considered Francis one of his best friends. Why should such a thing happen to a boy as good as Francis? he wondered. What was God about to allow this thing to happen? Or was there no God? Frank was asking the question often asked in such circumstances. He'd find his answer sooner than he expected. As the funeral procession passed at the gates of their old school, Frank was amazed to see the teachers and pupils lined up to show their respect for a boy many of them did not even know. Frank wondered why. Three hundred people gathered at the graveside that day. While the crowd heard the words, We commit the body of our comrade to the grave, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in the sure and certain hope of resurrection. One young man heard something else, a voice saying, I want you to take that young man's place. Frank looked around to see who could have spoken to him. Again he heard the voice, I want you to take this young man's place. He shivered. No one was close enough to whisper the words so that he could hear. The third time he heard the voice, I want you to take this young man's place. He realised this must be something supernatural. Everyone else was too intent on the burial service. God was calling him. He knew it in the depths of his spirit. You are all welcome to attend a memorial service on Sunday night at the Salvation Army Hall. Captain Spillett hoped some would accept the invitation. 
Will you come with me? Frank asked his mother. Of course I will. She did not hesitate. Here was an opportunity to get him into church again. The challenge of the voice at the graveside wouldn't go away. Going to that service might be the answer. That Sunday night he listened to the tributes to his friend. The music, the solo just for today and the sermon were one continuing message. Jesus saved Francis Howard, our comrade who has been promoted to glory. He can save you. The message concluded. Captain Spillett invited those whose guilt was troubling them to come to the penitent form. We will sing, all to Jesus I surrender. Come while we sing. The words of the old hymn carried their own appeal. No one moved, not even Frank Houston. He felt too embarrassed. The words of the chorus kept spinning in his mind. I surrender all. I surrender all. Why hadn't he had the courage to go forward to the altar? Why had he been afraid of people? He couldn't answer. That night he couldn't sleep for the conviction in his heart. He kept saying to himself, I should have gone forward. After hours of struggle, he climbed out of bed and, kneeling beside it, told the Lord he wanted indeed to become a Christian so he could fill Francis Howard's place. It was total commitment. A feeling in his heart told me that God had heard his prayer. Life would be very different. His mother also knew there was a change. What's happened to you, she queried, as he sat down for breakfast next morning. Last night I gave my heart to Jesus, and after work I'm going to tell Captain Spillett. Annie was delighted. Captain Spillett was also delighted. He would care for this convert until he was established, but not coddled him. He involved new Christians in army activities immediately, basing his philosophy on the scripture, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, Shall, thou shalt be saved. You've made a wise decision. Now I want you to meet me here on Friday evening at seven o'clock and we'll go to the open air together, Captain Spillett told Frank. I'll be there, Frank committed himself without realising what would be involved.